0: Our scripture lesson tonight is taken from Matthew 18. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21, and reading through the end of the chapter with particular attention to the parable of the unmerciful servant, or the parable of the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18, verse 21. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in a payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him. He began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, your heart, as far as the reading of God's Word. In conjunction with it, I'd like to direct your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 51, on page 62 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. My sermon tonight might be characterized more as a textual sermon than a catechism sermon, but uh, I think it's good to, if we have this in mind, the, uh, the catechism treatment of the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer as we consider Uh, the meaning of the parable of the unforgiving servant. Lord's Day 51 says, What does the fifth request mean? And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors' means. Because of Christ's blood, do not hold against us, poor sinners that we are, any of the sins we do or the evil we constantly cling to us. Forgive us, just as we are fully determined, as evidence of your grace in us, to forgive our neighbors. Beloved of the Lord, right at the beginning I want to emphasize that the matter that is before us in the parable of the unforgiving servant is a very vital matter, a matter of life and death, a matter of eternal consequence. Look how the passage ends, the last verse, so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. To whom is he addressing that? He's addressing that to the apostles. He's addressing it to the twelve. He's addressing to those who are following him, who have believed in him. And he's saying, if you don't forgive your brother from the heart, I'm going to do to you what in the parable the king does to that unmerciful servant. I'm going to throw you into jail, and God's jail is hell. And you're going to stay there until you pay your whole debt. And because your debt, because God's wrath is infinite and you're finite, that means you get crushed under his wrath for eternity. This indeed is a matter of life and death. This is a vital matter. This is a matter of eternal consequence. This is something that we need to be very concerned about. If Jesus says to his followers... You might spend eternity in hell if you don't forgive those who have sinned against you. Then we better sit up and take notice. But now you might be thinking this doesn't sound right. This sounds like a contradiction to the gospel. This sounds like salvation by good works. And so my, my first point tonight is this, that the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer and Matthew 18 regarding the unmerciful servant are not a contradiction of the gospel. Now that's easy enough to say, but how do you show that? How do you prove that, Pastor? Show me that indeed it is not a, a contradiction of the gospel. Well, uh, Reverend Tim Keller, who uh, I've learned a lot from, he, he has a sermon on Matthew 18 and And he, to uh, emphasize that this is not a a contradiction of the gospel, he he brings in another passage from Matthew, Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is well known to many people because it's that uh, judgment seat scene where uh, at the end of the age, uh, Christ gathers all humanity before himself and separates them in two groups as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, And he says uh, to those uh, on his right, Come, you who are blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And to those on his left, uh, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And what distinguishes the people on Christ's right hand from those on his left? Well, those on his right have fed the hungry people, given drink to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, visited the sick, and uh, uh, visited those who were in prison. And those on his left who go into eternal fire, uh, they have not done those things. Now you're thinking, how does that help us? That's who sounds like salvation by good works and uh, a contradiction of the gospel. But there's something else in Matthew 25 that you don't find in Matthew 18, although we have to read it there because it's in the broader context of Scripture. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, As much as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And as much as you haven't done to the least of these, my brothers, you haven't done it to me. What he's saying there is that if you uh, shut your heart to the needy, it is evidence that you have shut your heart to Jesus. And if you have opened your heart to the needy, it's because your heart has been opened to Jesus. The way you treat needy people in this world is indicative of your relationship to Christ. If you do what is right toward the needy, it indicates that you have a good relationship with Christ, that uh, uh, your heart has been softened by His grace and now you are soft in your heart toward those who are compassionate in your heart toward those who are needy because He has touched and changed your heart. But if if you lack compassion for the needy, it's because your heart is still hard and uh, impenitent and you are on the outs with Jesus. It's a a simple matter of uh, the fact that anything in this world that Jesus has commanded or anything that Jesus has authorized, if we reject what he approves, it shows that our relationship with him is not what we might think it to be. For example, there there are lots of people who say, I love Jesus, but they hate the church. They say the church is full of hypocrites, it's full of... uh, of people who say one thing and do the other, and I've been cheated by people who go to church, and I I want nothing to do with the church. But Christ says, I'm building my church, and I've given to my church pastors and teachers. I've given to my church elders and deacons. I've given to my church uh, sacraments, and I've given to my church church discipline. And you reject that, you're rejecting Jesus. Uh, It's the same with regard to his word. You know, Jesus uh, said... (laughs) My word is enduring. <laughs> it's all about me, he said, and not one jot or tittle of my word is going to pass away. Heaven and earth might pass away, but not not the smallest letter, or the smallest part of a letter is going to pass away. Which means the word of God is more enduring than nature. It's it's supernatural. It's above nature because nature is is less durable than the word of God, and it's His word. It's all about Him. It comes from Him. It's His Spirit that moved the Old Testament prophets. It's His Spirit that inspired the New Testament authors. It's, it's all His. And you reject it. You say, oh, I don't like that chapter. I don't like this part of the Bible. I don't like that part of the Bible. This one's okay, but you reject His Word. You're rejecting Jesus. Well, Matthew 18 is telling us the same sort of thing. If, if you are unforgiving toward those who have sinned against you, it's indicative of the kind of relationship that you have with Jesus. It indicates that uh, you're not right with him. Uh, to put it differently, uh, Matthew seven sixteen says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? If the fruit of a person's life is uh, grace and mercy to others, then the root of that person's life is in Jesus. But if the fruit of one's life is an unforgiving heart, then the root of that person is not in Jesus. In the words of our catechism, uh, our determination to to forgive our neighbor is evidence, evidence of God's grace in us. It's not the cause of God's grace in us. It's the evidence of God's grace in us, the fruit of uh, shows where the root is established, and we need to think about this for a moment, because holding a grudge against someone, being mad at someone who has hurt you by really doing something bad—I mean, they're in the wrong and you're in the right—and and you, you're mad at them, and you're, you're angry and. You're thinking, you know, God, they did me wrong. You do them wrong. <laughs> you know, uh, they hurt me. God, please hurt them. Or, or you look for ways that you could hurt them. We don't normally associate that idea, that that characteristic of our lives. We don't normally associate that with people who go to hell. Yeah, murderers, adulterers, thieves. Uh, those are the people who who go to hell. But But people who are unforgiving, they're often quite respectable. Think of proud Mr. Darcy in Jane Austen's uh, best uh, novel. Uh, He was willing to admit that he had a a minor flaw. My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. You you cross him once, uh, he would never forgive you. but he readily confessed it without any shame and nobody really thought ill of him he continued to remain a leading member of society and a very respectable and uh, uh, he uh, he won uh, his heart's uh, desire in the end miss elizabeth bennet uh, fell for him uh, despite his fault although i think she softened him a little according to the novel but This is sort of the the kind of respectable sin. Holding a grudge is, is the kind of thing that we don't normally associate with that. But Jesus tells us that even respectable people in the eyes of the world who are nevertheless resentful and unforgiving are destined for hell, just like murderers, adulterers, and drunkards, and thieves. You may be respectable in the eyes of the world. You may be respected in the church, But if you are resentful and unforgiving, you are a stranger to God's mercy. And you are in danger of the fire of hell unless there is reformation in your life. This is a vital matter. Now, there is hope. There is hope for you because Jesus warns us. He's giving us this parable and he's bringing it to your attention tonight so that you can begin to make remedy. And some of you may be distressed because you believe that Jesus has forgiven you and you want to be forgiving, but it's so hard. How can I learn to do it? When somebody really does something bad against me, how how can I possibly learn to forgive them from the heart? Well, in Matthew 18, in this parable, we, we get an idea of how that has to come about. There are uh, three things that I want to bring to your attention. One is from the broader context of scripture and then two from uh, the text of Matthew 18 itself, that is uh, the text that is before us. Uh, The first thing is this, that forgiving those who sin against you is a type of, or a subcategory of, loving your enemy. Uh, It's, it. When somebody sins against you, they're, they're acting like an enemy. And the, the need to forgive them is consistent with the commandment to love your enemy. Forgiving them is a, a way to, to love your enemy. And with regard to love for enemy, uh, the word that is used in the Bible to describe the love we ought to have for our enemy is uh, the Greek word agape, which is uh, not... Uh, uh, erotic love or friendship love. It is self-sacrificial love. And it's an action rather than a feeling. That's why Jesus can command you to, to love your enemy and to, to bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. He's not saying you have to like them, but you have to put their best interests ahead of your own. You have to self-sacrificially say okay, I'm going to inconvenience myself, I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to be concerned about what's best for them. That's the general category of forgiving those who have sinned against you. It's a subcategory of loving your enemy, which is an action, not a feeling. Secondly, we learn from our text that in order to forgive wholeheartedly, you must learn to humble yourself and identify with the person so that you might take pity on him. We read that that's what the king did here. He, he, took, he took pity on him. Uh, other translations have uh, he had compassion on him. How does that come about? Well, it comes about when you recognize that the person has sinned against you is someone like yourself, The Catechism uh, speaks of uh, forgiving your neighbor, and the text speaks of forgiving your brother. Uh, And both words imply someone near to us, someone like us. Our natural tendency uh, when sinned against is to react in self-righteous indignation, looking down on this filthy person who is uh, nothing but scum. I'm so much better than him. I would never do such a despicable thing. We make a caricature of the the person. You know, political cartoonists will take uh, some feature of a political person and exaggerate it so that it it dominates the drawing of that person. Well, we do that with regard to the sin of those who sin against us. Somebody lies to you and you discover it's a lie and you say, liar, liar, liar. You're, You're nothing but a liar. Forgetting the fact that Many times in your life, you weren't completely honest with the truth. Oh, but you say, Pastor, I, I, that, that was a complicated situation, you know, and, and I'm more than just that, that lie that I told. I, 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 there's all sorts of things in me that, lots of good things as well as a few bad things. Uh, you know, we, we compartmentalize with regard to our own lives. But when we look at the person who sinned against us, we just see that one lie, and that just fills the whole field of vision. That's all we see about that person, and, and, and that enables us to, to lift ourselves up in pride and arrogance and look down on them and, and so forth. But if we recognize we too have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, that there is in God's sight none righteous, no, not one, then we recognize that, that really they're no different than we are. And once we begin to realize that, then we can begin to have compassion and, uh, and pity them uh, the way the king takes pity on the uh, unmerciful servant. You know, in that, in that parable, when this man uh, begs for his, his, his life, begs for time to, to pay the loan... I imagine the the king was thinking, well, you know, either this man lost this money, and, and by the way, this isn't the cook in the king's household or the king's butler. The, the the amount of money is in the the millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. This is some high official in the kingdom, someone who uh, serves him as a governor in another province, in a province of the kingdom, or something, who has been entrusted with a huge budget, and and. Uh, uh, Like the state of California, in threat of uh, bankruptcy because of all sorts of things, uh, this this leader has uh, lost a a huge sum of money. And uh, the king is thinking, well, it's either through incompetence and through forces over which he has no control, or it's corruption, one or the other. And obviously, from the way the king reacts, he assumes it must be either through incompetence or through forces over which the man has no control. The, you know, recessions happen, earthquakes happen, uh, natural disasters happen, uh, the stock market crashes. There's, there's all sorts of things that uh, happen that, that if you, you're not a really wise money manager, you're not prepared for, and therefore things get out of hand and snowball, and then the money all of a sudden is gone. And and so, yeah, those sorts of things can happen to anybody. And maybe it's even happened to the king. And so the king doesn't lift himself up in pride and arrogance and say, oh, you're such a terrible administrator. Uh, unlike me, I'm the perfect administrator. Well, if, he's, if the king's the perfect administrator, why did he appoint this man to such high position of authority? You know, the king has to, I guess, uh, uh, recognize that this sort of thing can happen to anybody. It could happen to the king. And so he he sees himself in the same light as that person, and that's why he has compassion. Later on, he finds out that this man's heart is corrupt, and then his reaction is entirely different. But at first, he thought, no, he's just like myself. And uh, so when, when, we, when we see that... That the people who sin against us are just like us, uh, then we begin to have compassion. And this re- is true with regard to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's true with regard to our brothers and sisters in fallen humanity. You know, there's a very important passage about forgiveness in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. It says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against Anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. If you have anything against anyone, not just fellow Christians, but anyone in the world who has hurt you, when you stand praying, that is when you're in the presence of God and you're praying to Him and you're seeking forgiveness for your own sins, if you don't in your heart unilaterally, that means one-sidedly, just you, without regard to whether this person is, you're forgiving is, is repentant or not, unilateral, universal, forgive from the heart anyone who has sinned against you. Otherwise, you can have no assurance that your Father has sinned against you. You know, if you've broken one commandment, in essence, you've broken them all. And the only reason you may not have hurt others the way you've been hurt by others is because God has restrained you uh, by his word and spirit. When you humble yourself and when you identify yourself as a fellow sinner, you can begin to have compassion and anger and resentment begin to fade away because you realize that in the eyes of God, you're no better than this person who has sinned against you. So recognize that forgiving them is an action, not a feeling. That's the first thing, and then begin to recognize that you're just a sinner just as much as they are in the eyes of God, and uh, uh, we could add to that that uh, God has forgiven you a great amount, uh, and this person has not sinned against you near as much as you sinned against God, so you need to have compassion. That will uh, help quell your anger. The third thing you need to do is to cancel the debt, which means you pay it yourself, uh, the verb translated forgive in the Greek means to send off, to let go, to release as in forgiving a financial uh, debt, saying to the debtor, don't worry about it, it's taken care of you, don't owe me anything now. You know that if somebody owes you money, say you're a landlord and you have a tenant paying you rent, and you need that rent money to pay the mortgage on the property that you own, the, the rental property you bought with a mortgage and uh, you collect the rent uh, On Monday and Tuesday, you take the rent money to the bank and you pay the mortgage payment. But your tenant comes and says, I lost my job. Uh, I can't pay you this month. And you're a compassionate person, so you say, don't worry about it. We'll forget this month's rent. I forgive this month's rent. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means uh, you pay (laughs) the rent. That means you have to go to the bank with your own money and uh, pay the mortgage payment. Uh, sometimes when uh, you who are in business uh, have a client that uh, declares bankruptcy and they owe you a lot of money and you're forced uh, to uh, forgive the debt, uh, you have no choice in the matter, they have declared bankruptcy, uh, we call that uh, eating the debt. I had to eat that one, you say. Uh, and, well, that's what, that's what it means to forgive. It means you voluntarily uh, pay the debt yourself. Now, in most cases, it's not money that you you have to pay yourself. It's, it's an emotional debt. You know, when somebody sins against you, it hurts. And our natural reaction is to want to hurt them to make them pay. And so we all do all sorts of little things to try to, uh, to make them suffer. We may, we may tell everybody, what they did in order to ruin their reputation, or we may shun them and scorn them and refuse to shake hands with them, refuse to make eye contact with them, refuse to go to any family gathering where that person is at. You know, I'm going to make them realize that they hurt me and I'm going to try to shame them in public as much as possible because of, of what they did to me. That's, that's how we do it, but you're to love them. And uh, love them because it's your enemy and you're commanded to love your enemy and to to do good to those who hurt you, which means you have to now start acting in their best interest. And that's not easy to do. Have you ever tried to do something nice for someone you don't like? It hurts. (laughs) There's emotional pain that you experience. The emotional pain that you want to inflict on them to punish them You have to take that internally in yourself. You have to eat it and and, and smile at them. And smiling at them, when you want to strangle them, that's not easy. But already you've started to not want to strangle them because you already recognize that you're just like them in God's sight. You're just as much a sinner as they are. and, And so that's helped quell some of your anger. And now you're prepared to begin to start doing nice things for them. Uh, uh, well does this mean that we can't ever redress the wrongs that have been done against us is there no justice in this world Do we just have to forget about all the things that have been done against us and and, and be nice to people who, who are bad to us well a little earlier in Matthew 18 it says if your brother sins against you go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to to you, you've gained your brother. Now, notice there that you haven't told everybody what a mean and terrible person this is who has cheated you out of your share of the family inheritance. Uh, you don't tell it at every family gathering about how that so-and-so, when our parents died, he, he jumped in there and he took everything and, and, and left us with nothing. No, you go to him quietly to avoid any public shaming any public embarrassment you go to him to try to win him that is to make him see his fault but let's say you go to him and he sees that you are seething with anger you think he's going to be impressed (laughs) he sees that you want to strangle him you go and you yell at him you do it privately but you yell at him you scream at him you tell him what a jerk he is Yeah, that's that's going to win him over, isn't it? No, it's it's not. Unless you have first, unilaterally and universally from the heart, forgiven him before you go so that you are determined to do nothing except what is good for him, you will have no effect upon him. You will not be able to win him over. Uh, In Galatians 6, verse 1, it says, Brother, Uh, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You go into a spirit of gentleness. Now, if all of this sounds strange to you, then you really don't understand the gospel. Because what is it that won us to Christ? Did he come to us with with lightning bolts from hell and say, if you don't repent right now, this bolt is going through your heart? We read in Romans chapter 2, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God. The smoldering wick he does not uh, snuff out. The, the, The broken reed he does not break. or The bruised reed he does not break. You know, he... He comes gentle, mild. He says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden. Come unto me and I will give you rest. He ate our debt. He paid our debt himself. And he doesn't come in anger. Now he comes gently. He comes lovingly. And he wins us over by his love. I'm sure that because this is a a Michigan story... Some of you know the story, the story of Rachel Den Hollander. She was a victim of physician Larry Nasser, physician to the Olympic gymnastic team, and he was a sexual abuser, and he abused many, many women. At the sentencing phase of his trial, victim impact statements were read. And many of the victim impact statements breathed out fire and brimstone against Larry Nassar. uh, People said, I hope you burn in hell forever because of the, the destruction you did to the lives of so many young women. But Rachel Den Hollander, one of his victims, wrote a different kind of letter. She said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may know someday the experience of true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. I don't know whether Larry Nasser is meditating upon the victim impact statements that were uh, read at his trial, but I'm sure that the one that breathed out fire in brimstone are not going to move him to repentance. If anything moves him to repentance, it will be the, the kindness and the love of, of this woman who wants salvation for him. She wants to spend eternity in him with him in heaven. Rejoicing in the grace of God. If that sounds really strange to you, something really utterly impossible, I would challenge you to, uh, as a homework assignment, to, uh, to go home and, and uh, uh, open up an internet browser and type into the internet browser, Parents forgive their child's killer. Parents forgive their child's killer and hit enter. I did that, and on the first page, there were a half a dozen stories of Christian parents who, like Rachel Hollander, at the time of the, the sentencing, comes and, and says to the, to, to the man who killed their child, we forgive you, and we're praying for you that, that you will find forgiveness. Now, this unilateral, universal forgiveness from the heart is not the same as reconciliation. As long as the man remains unrepentant, as long as he continues to sin, you can't be best buds. But you can remove from your heart any desire for revenge. You know, that's, that's really what, what makes this such a terrible sin, a, a sin worthy of hell, is because Jesus says, vengeance, or God says, vengeance is mine and I shall repay and when you put yourself in the place of God and say, he hurt me, now I'm judging him, I found him guilty, and I'm going to punish him, I'm going to make him feel the, the pain of what he did to me, you're putting yourself in God's place. You're violating the first commandment. Who are you to put yourself on the, the throne of judgment? We, have, we don't have that right. We're displacing God, we're, we, we're having another God other than the true God because we're making ourselves God and and the judge of all the earth. That's what makes this such a terrible sin. And so Jesus is saying, look, you need to learn to forgive. I forgave you. I forgave you a huge amount, 10,000 talents. A few denarii, that's that's just a few days, a hundred uh, denarii is, is a couple of months wages Compared to hundreds of millions of dollars, what, you, what other people owe you is nothing compared to what I have forgiven you. So get down off your high horse. See that you're a sinner too. And start acting in the best interest of others. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Bless those who curse you. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he needs the gospel, preach it to him. And preach it to him in love, showing that you've forgiven him so that he understands the power of forgiveness. May God give us such faith. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word that warns us of the the seriousness of carrying a grudge and uh, uh, nursing a grudge and and, and remaining angry at those who have uh, hurt us. We pray, O Father, that we may learn to forgive as we have been forgiven, freely and uh, from the heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let us respond to God's word by singing selection number 278, How good and pleasant is the sight when brethren make it their delight to dwell in blessed accord. Number 278, stand if you're able, and all the stanzas, all three stanzas.